You can't respond to a crisis with a business as usual response. That just doesn't work. And if there's one thing I've learned, being part of Greater Christchurch over the last 10 years, that a disaster or a crisis requires a dedicated response to get the best outcome. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome to the People Inspired by Purpose podcast with Amy Carter. Amy is the CEO of the Christchurch Foundation. It is one of 17 community foundations in New Zealand with over 200 million combined in an endowment. What they do is encourage and facilitate place-based giving. One area thoroughly deserving of support is Christchurch. In 2011, it was devastated by an earthquake, killing 185 people. In March 2019, a terrorist attack on a mosque killed 51 people. The founding partner set up the foundation after the earthquake, and it's fair to say that Amy has been through it all. She's been under fire for local politicians. She's hit the headlines. She's survived it all. She continues to flourish. Enjoy this episode. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. Amy Carter, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Oh, thanks, Mark. No, it's great to be here. You are the CEO of the Christchurch Foundation. What's its purpose? What's its mission? Our role is to make Greater Christchurch better. Uh, so that includes not only Christchurch City, but the surrounding districts of Selwyn and Waimakariri by growing philanthropy. So we're a community foundation based upon the model that's been highly successful in North America and Europe. But we've got some unique products and services that we support you to we use to support donors that are, are specific to here based on what our people have told us. It seems like if any city needs a community foundation, it's Christchurch. So Christchurch has been through some really tough times, isn't it? I'm thinking earthquake in 2011 and also a mass killing at a mosque, which is absolutely shocking. Unique Christchurch? I think, um, yeah, we also had the Port Hills fire. So it felt for a while there that we were sort of, um, <laughs> we were just waiting for the plague. Oh, look. <laughs> um, so it arrived. Uh, <laughs> yes, it arrived. Yeah, I think. In many ways, every city needs a community foundation. I think it's a really smart model that will benefit everybody. I think more than others because of the what we've been through as a collective has probably shown us the opportunities of having a vehicle like a community foundation here to help meet residents' aspirations, deliver outcomes that we're all wanting for, for um, our city and our surrounding area. Yeah, and place-based giving and, and mm. people are... Uh, you know, they're known as Cantabs or they're, they're really loyal, loyal to being from, identifying, even if they don't live in Canterbury, they're, you know, they're really incredibly loyal. So you tap into that sort of loyalty, that sense of belonging people believe in the area and want to give? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there's shallow soils on the Canterbury Plains, but because of that, you grow very deep roots. And um, I think with perhaps an exception of the Hawke's Bay, you never stop being a Cantabrian no matter where you live in the world. And that's an opportunity for us. And people want to maintain that connection back to home. And so one of the roles that we provide is helping expatriates to continue and strengthen their links back here through their generosity. And so that's a big area of focus for us in helping connect people back to here, to causes that are aligned to and also to the betterment of the situation for all, for all our residents. Yeah. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, there's, I was going to say 17, but possibly 18 community foundations right across New Zealand. They've got over 200 million in funds in, in endowment. And 
for you guys, it was a startup situation. Like it's relatively new, isn't it? The question. Yeah, we're year five, so we're, we're a babe compared to many of the others that have been around, coming up twenty years in the in the Western Bay of Plenty, which is in, in the North Island. So we we were set up as a legacy project because of the earthquake sequences that we suffered and took out the central central city. Um, it was catastrophic um, failure of our CBD, Central Business District, and also we lost over 12,000 homes as well. So it had a huge impact on here. And what we saw was an overflowing of generosity, but there was no vehicle to manage that. And initially the government, sorry, and then latterly the, the Christchurch City Council, in particular the Mayor Leanne Dalziel, saw an opportunity or perhaps that there was a gap in terms of helping support that generosity back here so and we were desperately looking I think for things that that were positive that came out of of the of the earthquakes there was a lot of trauma but we also needed some opportunities to see goodness and and the legacy of a, of a foundation that would make our place better for generations and, and forever it seemed like a really smart move as part of that story and so 2011 26 mm-hmm. February 1251 earthquake hits, where was Amy Carter? At my office, I was a um, a communication specialist and had a PR firm. So I was right in the heart of the central city. Buildings collapsed on three sides of us. I used to be a comms person and and fundraiser for St John, the ambulance service here in New Zealand. So once we'd cleared the building and put signs up about then an ambulance, an advanced paramedic arrived and said, Amy, can we park in your car park? And I might need some help. So I'd done my training when I worked at St. John. So I was helping suture people and <laughs> treat people in, in the car park and hoping that all of my staff would come back because we didn't know where they were. And I also managed to get a, eventually get a call through to my husband who wasn't in town and couldn't get through to my nanny who had my one-year-old um, back at our house and the epicentre was, was very close to our home. So it was pretty horrific. And not only was the, the on the day, it was the culminative effect of the thousands of aftershocks. We didn't sleep properly for years. And I don't think people who hasn't lived through that really understand the, how that impacts a community and a person. But what it did do is shine a light on um, what was important. So obviously people and a sense of community. So in many ways, the earthquakes strengthened us and enabled us to respond in a better way to the to the moss shootings and later, you know, more recently. And it meant that we understood what was important, which was people. And you saw that if you've seen any footage of how the city and the surrounding districts responded and wrapped around that community, um, that that came through very clearly. And do you remember your own emotions on the day? Do, were you in shock operating on sort of auto, automatic pilot, or do you remember what it was like for you? Uh, March fifteen, all the earthquakes. For the, earth, for the main earthquake. Main, main earthquake. Um, initially, shock. I mean, we heard it coming. I was sitting with my team. There was sort of 10 of us sitting in our office in this beautiful sort of minimalist loft office space that had been earthquake strengthened. And you heard the noise and we all turned and literally saw a wave come up the road towards us. And yeah, if you can understand it physically was a wave of concrete and things as it came through. A horrific shock and trauma, checking on everyone, then their worry, need to, to help. 
an account for everybody. And um, and then it's interesting that the advanced paramedic Rob that arrived in my car park had said to me, oh, Amy, where's Lily? Because he knew I had a baby because the epicenter's near your house because he knew and I sort of fell to bits at that point very briefly but then you knew it was either all good or bad and you just had to trust who was with them and you carried on Um, because it was people that needed immediate help then and there and I wasn't going to get there quickly and then because we didn't have power or water or sewer for six weeks because I lived in one of the worst impacted suburbs I didn't see a lot of footage and we were also, I was working a lot. I was seconded by the government to, to run a shift for the communications for the immediate response. So you're living it and breathing it, but didn't see it. And it's interesting. I got asked to speak at an event in Auckland sort of eight months later and I was standing next to Mike McRoberts, the anchorman for, for one of our TV networks here. And he played footage and I just felt bits burst into tears on the stage because I hadn't seen it. And since I'd lived it, yeah. And so there's a real sense from you that you wanted to be part of the rebuild, and so your approach to to think about you know starting a community foundation or as being part of the response. Yeah, that was definitely a calling from that day. I mean, literally, my husband and I were were about to pull the pin on and leave Christchurch. We were going to immigrate to New York. Um, We've got family there. We'd, you know, Christchurch was and still is a rural provincial town, but it had become pretty stale. There was a certain leadership within the city who had got comfortable, well-intentioned, but comfortable. So it was feeling pretty stale and it felt as though we perhaps had capped out in terms of what we could offer to the city. It was sort of even that evening, Nick and I said, we need to stay now because not only because we felt we needed to help, but also because we could see opportunities coming. But it wasn't really socially acceptable to talk about the opportunities for a couple of years because obviously people died. And you can understand everyone was at a different point of a grieving process. Almost everyone in the city knew someone that was lost and not everyone, you know, recovers from that trauma as quickly as others. So we had to sort of keep a bit quiet about that. But yeah, we, we've bought businesses, built new businesses, and yeah, I then helped launch the Community Foundation because it actually strengthened our connection to this place. Yeah, because nearly nearly 200 people died and they lost their lives, which is huge. And I think partially Mm -hmm. around the time of the day that it happened, this is, you know, a busy day of the week around lunchtime. Like you said, office blocks or offices buildings were full of people going about Mm -hmm. their day. And in terms of the aftershocks, just continuous broken sleep, People living in unusual parts of the city, businesses now no longer in the CBD, moved to this. Like, life was really altered for a period of time, wasn't it? And, and remains altered. Yeah, I think in the Western world, we've got pretty comfortable around life. Life's pretty easy. And perhaps the re- Ukraine at the moment gives us a bit more of an insight about what happens when that changes. And, you know, which is just horrific. And I can't even compare what's happening there to what happened here. But yeah, everything changes. And and some people respond well to a situation where things are changing. They sort of step up. Others don't. And you definitely saw that and continue to see that. There's, you know, there's still, without a doubt, an underlying hurt, anger and trauma within parts of, the, of, of our community. And then others that have seize the opportunities that came out of change and have made the most of it so you always need to tread carefully with whomever you're with to understand where they are on that journey 
So I think uh, EQ is vastly improved. <laughs> and um, yeah, you just, I think, uh, yeah, it really highlighted what is important in taking the time to, to understand where your people that you're with, where they're at and those sorts of things. But yeah, everything changed. Yeah. And, you know, the South Island Canterbury Christchurch is known, you know, for quintessential kind of Kiwi traits around stiff up and lift and, you know, she'll be right, mate, and don't get too sensitive on it. And that's certainly my impression anyway. Suddenly people, uh, lives are totally shaken up, turned upside down, people have lost people, people are grieving. Do you think Cantabrians, like you said, their EQ has been raised, but do you think they became more emotional people? Do you think they're able to share their feelings or talk about their feelings more? Yeah, I, I, certainly within my circle of networks, conversations around mental health and those sorts of things are far more prevalent than they were before the quakes. The, the leadership of the city completely changed as well. I, I have a lot of um, respect and sympathy for the baby boomers that had sort of got to the peak of the pile in terms of leadership in the city and then everything changed at a time when they thought things were going to be comfortable. That must have been really hard to cope with, you know, whereas we were younger, so probably more open to to things changing and being different and pivoting, to use an overused term. But definitely there's an acute understanding of the wider concept of well-being and the sense of community. So when I travel to other parts of the world or other parts of New Zealand, I notice a difference. So, yeah, I think we've become tighter, even more together as a community. Don't get me wrong, there's still other issues and I'm sure we'll talk about undertaken led by the Christchurch City Council, Leanne, and, and a councillor at that stage, a guy called Raf Manji, and um, other elected members, and they saw a need. Because what happened after the earthquakes was that there was a lot of well-intentioned sort of collection went on. The Prime Minister set up a fund, and the Mayor at the time set up a fund, and all this generosity came in, but there was no stewardship of the donor. It took years for the distributions to happen. They built the infrastructure retrospectively, like most responses to a traumatic event, the decisions were largely made around the distributions by well-meaning people in a room in isolation that perhaps weren't as impacted as, so didn't really have an understanding of what had gone on. So there were some lessons to be learned. And so we were literally saying, yes, we've just made a commitment as a city to establish a community foundation when the mosque shootings happened. So at that stage, there was me, I had a desk and a laptop and the shootings happened on the Friday. We were literally sort of doing due diligence on software and those sorts of things. So very, very early days. And the mayor sent me a text and said, set up a fund to respond to the shootings. So we stood it up overnight, including getting up a platform where you could give through. So, you know, I had graphic designers and programmers and developers building it literally overnight and we had it live the next day. And then I got a phone call from the Prime Minister's office saying that the, the Mayor had put them in touch and said, you know, we were talking about setting up a fund, but Leanne's telling us perhaps we should consider going with you. Can you tell us why? So sent an email um, outlining all the reasons why and what we saw after the earthquakes and the learnings from that. And so the Prime Minister's office designated us as their fund as well later that day mm. so it was and there was a gift coming in every 30 seconds 
varying in size from 50 cents from children's pocket monies through to bigger gifts took longer to facilitate, obviously, because a lot of it was over half of the generosity that came was from offshore. A single largest gift was 2.2 million. So, yeah, extremes in every level. And, um, yeah, it was it was pretty full noise for a while there. <laughs> yeah, and a total of 11 million donated more now we're up to because we've had a couple of other gifts come in and continue to give in to support that community for one of the legacy projects that we set up so we're up to about 13 and a half million to support that community now almost all of that has been distributed already with the exception of a, a fund to support the 105 children who who lost a family member in the shootings and that fund, our education fund, still alive and that is supporting them in their tertiary qualifications post high school. Um, So we'll be um, supporting them, those individuals, for an 18-year lifetime to that fund because some were in utero when when the shootings happened. So huge pressure to get this right because, you know, significant amount of money but also a community that's completely rocked and lives destroyed. And so feeling the pressure to get it right, but having seen or been through the, the experience of the, the earthquake and and understanding that actually you can give money badly, that, that was the thing. Yeah, there, I think we'd saw that, we'd seen that, yeah, that, that things perhaps could have been done smarter after the earthquakes. I think the intentions were right for everybody at that time, but, you know, there was certainly some learnings from that. And that was that um, you have to listen to and empower those most impacted. And I don't think we did that quite right after the earthquakes. So I met with Muslim leaders, some self-appointed, others not, from both Christchurch and around New Zealand on the Friday, the day, two days following the shootings, when the money was already starting to come in and I made three promises. One, that we'd ask the victims how the money should be used, that we would do everything with transparency was number two, and the third was that we may not understand Islam, but all that we do will be done with love. And we stood up and delivered against those three promises. And um, so then did things very different. So there were sort of two approaches. Victim support also had raised money, about $11 million. And so um, Kevin So, the the chief executive there, and I and the people in the room at that day sort of made the decision that they would do the emergency distributions and ours would finish once these had, we would begin once they'd finished their distribution programme. The two organisations took quite different approaches to how we did that. Ours was completely led by the community, which was hundreds of hours sitting with anyone that wanted to talk to us from the wider Muslim community and then obviously a heavier emphasis on listening to the stories of those most impacted and asking them how we should do this. And we then took that those suggestions and looked to the world where there'd been other acts of terror where where philanthropy played a role and so we received some great information from the London Emergencies Trust who responded to similar events Um, Kensington Community Foundation which responded to Grenville Tower 
Uh, we also spoke a bit, the London Emergency Trust managed the response to the Manchester shootings at the Ariana Grande concert. And we also received some good support from Vancouver's Community Foundation about what they'd learned out of having to do something similar. So we took world best practice and then informed that with the information from those most impacted and then made distribution framework based upon that. Is the, is the pressure um, short-term in terms of trauma and, and you know, people who need medical, medical attention, they need things in the here and now, but taking a long-term view also in terms of, you know, families will have lost their main earner, for example. Yeah. Um, that sort of, do you remember those sort of issues being being? Prevalent? Yeah, and, and some of that's still live. It's not all gone. Um, and, of course, we've got here, you know, there's obviously quite a strong support system in New Zealand in terms of how the government supports people. So we also were regularly liaising with relevant ministries about what they would cover and what they wouldn't and trying to find the gaps and then ended up actually being engaged by the Crown to act as the advocates for the community beyond that initial block of research we did and when we set up a distribution framework to continue to act and advocate for the communities and we did that for another year. So that's that's wound up about um, a year ago. But we still continue to get uh, requests from help from some members of the community and it might be as simple as making a phone call or helping understand how things happen here in New Zealand because it was literally families who'd lived here for generations versus migrants that had arrived the week before that were impacted. There was something like 15 different languages, two versions of Islam, two mosques, incredibly complex. And you're trying yeah. to trust is a crucial thing in philanthropy and giving as well, isn't it? So yeah. you've got to understand who to trust, maybe who not to trust because all of those all those disasters or atrocities you talked about, there were you know people who were trying to take the opportunity to um, to benefit where they they weren't supposed to. But you also are like a really small team at this point, right? So having to <laughs> do a really big job, like yeah, I, I was incredibly fortunate. So Raf Manji, who I talked about earlier, he had finished up being a, a, a councillor and was doing a few bits and pieces. His father was a Muslim, practicing Muslim, and I knew really early in the piece that um, my I had no real understanding of Islam and also being a woman in some instances would have caused some issues. So I reached out to Raf and said, I need your help. And he came on board straight away. So initially he worked for free. I'd hate to think the hours that he put in just, and he, and we, that was a smart decision we made. So Raf was the, um, the listener, the recorder of, of information, the making recommendations. And so he concentrated on supporting the families and the victims and understanding that part of the pie, which left me to focus on AML, um, you know, getting money in from overseas in a legal way, navigating through all of those issues, continuing to build because we were literally a startup, the infrastructure of the foundation behind the scenes to do it. So uh, we just basically split into two camps. I had a part-time staff member supporting me at that time and she uh, was great and just sort of rolled up her sleeves. So that was literally just me when, when this happened. And then Raf came on board as volunteers and then we quickly onboarded a couple of extra staff just to cope. And we also had some incredible corporate support. So I remember thinking, how am I even going to reconcile the bank accounts? Which sounds <laughs> ludicrous, but it was that sort of stuff, you know, how can we receipt 
gifts if we can't even reconcile the bank accounts because it was coming in so fast. You know, there's just thousands of gifts. And I sort of said to um, someone in government that that was a problem. And and so they literally made a call and Westpac kindly offered me three bank tellers that could specialise in reconciliation that came in and just sat as part of our team to help. So, you know, there was all sorts of generosity like that that we, we just couldn't have done without at that time. And there was, you know, huge media attention and scrutiny, plus ultimately ensuring that we met the balancing act of ensuring that we had the best outcome for those that needed our support, but also that we honoured the wishes of the donors, which is a fine line to walk at times. Did you have a real sense of the sort of fine line you were walking? And do you remember going home and, and talking to your husband and saying, yeah, we've got, there's a lot of pressure on getting this right. Do you, do you remember the enormity impacting on you? Yeah, Raph and I used to have a cup of tea twice a week where we'd just sit in a room and turn our phones off and just have a peppermint tea and just download both ways. Because he's sitting in living rooms with families that have lost their husbands or who's family members are critically ill in hospital, hearing and dealing with that trauma, you know. So, yeah, I mean, all of us have got undergone some counselling at some point as a team. Anyone that was directly involved from the Christchurch Foundation has had to, to ask for help at some point. And you're incredibly aware in the moment that we had to do this right. But it didn't worry me. I thought, which sounds odd, it was more that if we listened and we hear and then act upon what those that are most impacted and do the same at the other end and continue to talk to both groups, we should get this right. And we can only do what we can do. And as long as we do that with transparency and integrity and honesty, then how wrong can we go? In terms of that mosque still operating, that community have been able to rebuild themselves. And, and is that, has that been the case? No, it's more complex. So there was two mosques, two locations. Those communities will be suffering from that day for generations. I have no doubt about that. And the work that we have done was a drop in the ocean, but hopefully it was meaningful enough that it helped. You know, we literally have, and and we, we haven't talked about some of this, but, you know, we helped some of the widows buy a home because they didn't have a home but the money that we had collected meant they could afford to so we literally negotiated with on them and on their behalf to buy their buy their first home some of them that had bought houses those houses then need to be retrofitted to to meet their new needs because they may be in a wheelchair or whatever so you know our relationship with the community led by RAF was very intimate in particular with those most impacted that, um, those that had uh, lost a family member or who had been shot. Now, at times that's we've received criticisms from other members of the community that weren't, weren't as most impacted, but most definitely suffered trauma because they were present. But ultimately, we couldn't be there for everyone at the same level because there's only so much money and so much of us. Yeah. And getting almost accepting of the idea that you're going to get some stick from somebody, um, yeah. whether it be the media, whether it be political people, whether it be mm-hmm. some people within that community, that Muslim community, and just focused on doing the right thing and, and sticking to your um, beliefs around listening to the victims uh, and being yeah. left. And we've caught flat from that, from political realms, which I'm sure you'll probably want to talk about, because it, a lot of what we did 
has been kept private because that's what that community is owed, privacy and respect. And also it's about keeping them safe beyond, you know, into future generations and those sorts of things too. And so we haven't shared a lot of that information around how we the work we did beyond the money in terms of supporting that community. And we got called out for focusing on that too much and not doing other stuff, which was our BAU. But ultimately, you, you can't respond to a crisis with a BAU response, a business as usual response. That just doesn't work. And if there's one thing I've learned through watching and being part of, of Greater Christchurch over the last 10 years, 11 years, that's that. You yeah. know, a disaster or a crisis requires a dedicated response to get the best outcome. Yeah. And so let's deal with that, criticism then. So the business model, you know, before the, the moss shooting and continued to be was around your core costs of the community foundation were covered by the local authority, is that right? Yeah, and that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So they they we had a contract. They established us, and all, all the research that they did before looking to establish us was that we had to be an independent entity that couldn't be controlled by politicians because people wouldn't give to it if it was controlled by politicians. So we are a registered charity that's independent of council, but then we had a, a funding agreement for our establishment phase that the Christchurch City Council and us signed. So they very generously provided us with money to get us up and running, and that was a fixed amount of up to 600000 a year, which was incredibly generous. It meant that we could be well-resourced from day one and build for 100 years' time uh, with the best of software and those sorts of things, and hire people that are, are good at what they do and that was great but we became a bit of a political football uh, which got headlines so what happened is you know the we had the mayor and deputy mayor sitting on our boards uh they're massive advocates for our work because because uh, they were privy to a lot of what we were doing and how much how complicated it was and those sorts of things and then you know and quite Rightly, everyone has a voice in New Zealand and it's something I'd fiercely protect. Others were saying, well, why this isn't core council business? Why are we supporting this? Which led to a bit of toing and froing at times. But I think... And just for context, this is a model that was kind of duplicated, if you like, in, in Auckland, isn't it? They too, the Auckland Foundation mm. and, and other um, often big city foundations that, you know, that the local authority or the, the local council sees this as an investment in the future of, of that city because you know you, you become a fulcrum or you become a place where private money can help benefit all Aucklanders or right. yeah. yeah and and I still firmly me believe that uh local authorities should be supportive and collaborating and working on the side community foundations I think they add immense value and that is a rate payer I would say that and I think the generosity of the city to get for Christchurch city to get us up and running even though our region was beyond their city limits was incredibly brave and smart and has actually already derived outcomes but the problem is we're not an atypical charity so anyway as part of that funding agreement to which we've never pulled the full amount that we're entitled to down because we take public money very seriously so we're about just under $900,000 we left on the table with council that we were entitled to under contract and said, no, we don't need it over that establishment phase. And we've just come into the end. We've just, this is our last year now, and then that will be um, done. So we, we're ahead of schedule in terms of becoming fiscally independent. And that's because we've got 
other donors that have stepped into the void and, you know, we've worked hard to do that. It got personal for you, didn't it? Because your salary, you know, you and your chair are responsible for the the setting up of the foundation and the launch of it. And it all got a bit personal. That was the media more than anyone else. And there certainly wasn't any questions out of the elected members about my salary, but the media were questioning my salary, saying that because I work for a charity, I should be should basically work for free or next to nothing. And the philosophy of my chair, and I'm, you know, you can talk to him about it, was that the third, there's four things for a successful functioning Western world democracy is you need really good government structures and, you know, high levels of trust and, and you know, low levels of fraud and bad behaviour. So a really well-functioning government system. You need a great media to hold everyone to account you need um, a thriving, strong business sector, but you have to have a strong and vibrant for-purpose sector as well because for-purpose fills the gaps where the others don't go. And they also are able to – the drivers are different. It's about the outcomes and, pur- you know, what your intent is trying to achieve is different. It's not about profit. It's about people, you know, and that's quite a different – and there's not that political overlay. So – from day one, our establishment chair, Humphrey Rolston, had said he approached me. He wanted me to be this founding chief executive. I, I thought I was going on the border. It wasn't on my radar to come and do this. To do it, I shut down my own business to come and do this, which was a significant reduction in personal salary, but that was a choice I willingly made. Am I paid well? Yes. But why, when we admit that the not-for-profit sector is so critically important to our country, would we then insist that the people working in it get paid a pittance? And we wanted to make a stand against that, that people should be paid fairly for the work that they do. And I won't apologise for being paid fairly for the work that I do. So, yeah. you know, going from where I was, I love the, the fact that you – yeah, stared this down. You were very transparent. You're in your chair. You went and got questions. You talked to the media. What was going on for you personally? Was it was it a tra- traumatic time, or actually you kind of kept perspective? And I was able- grumpy. I was pissed off, to be frank, because I I felt that it was unjust. Because actually we'd done everything. In fact, we've exceeded all of our all of the establishment criteria. We'd done this world leading to global acclaim response to horrific trauma in terms of our response to March 15. You know, the Gates Foundation have named that as world-leading best practice to an act of terror. Uh, There's a Winston Churchill scholarship research paper, their foundation, about using us as an example to share that information to the world so they know how to do it, that taking a victim-led response is smart. We're the first in the world to do it. We did it. The vast majority of those people that worked with us who were impacted and we were supporting think we did a great job and are still, you know, send me gifts and Christmas cards and wish me happy birthday and those sorts of things, you know. So when I knew that was the reality and then have some tier three accountant in a consulting firm that had never worked in the not-for-profit sector questioning whether what we'd done was correct, I found pretty frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. At the heart (laughs) of this is a a report that was pulled together which sort of came up with a figure around every dollar donated 56 cents was spent on overheads, something along those lines, but they yeah. had, had excluded the, the money raised or donated for the mosque atrocity. Yes. So um, the, the root of the most antagonism was that they dis- and that actually happened, the council staff did that, it wasn't actually the 
the report from an external consultant, they tried to compare us on our establishment phase with good intention to say, well, how are they going? But you can't. So they'd removed all the funds that we'd raised, some $13 million, put that to one side and then said, well, this is all the money they've erased, <laughs> but then left all the costs in and, and didn't. So it was just, it was flawed. So, I mean, that, that... The anger that you're experiencing, you know, what made you stick around? Because I knew it was, it was the right thing to do and my commitment to the city and its people got stronger, not weaker. Did you get clapped? Was there any days that you thought, I'm, you know, I'm out of here? I probably would have used a few. Yeah, there's a couple of times I was pretty low, but it never crossed my mind to leave. I, I was more worried about my team. They were so hurt. Did people reach out? Did you? Did you yeah, get- previous prime ministers, world philanthropic leaders, people I admire in the community. We we got more gifts in over that period for our operational overheads than we'd ever received before. Yeah. So people read the report and were so, people were more angry than I was about how that there was no logic to this and that it had been poorly done. So actually in many ways, I mean, we copped some public criticism, we copped some criticism from the media. We didn't lose one donor. In fact, we gained donors. What's it like being at the heart of a media storm like do you read the articles and go this feels sort of out of body or does did you not read what was the what was the sort of did you sleep what was what was it like at home yeah I was pretty wild I mean I wasn't a lot of sleep so I'd worked in PR uh so I I'd, but I'd never been the subject of the bad PR I'd always had to manage the PR <laughs> so it was an interesting experience for me to be experiencing it but yeah I mean it's not fun but I also knew it would be the fish and chip paper in a couple of days' time. And as long as and I was empowered by receiving phone calls from people I really respected saying, you've done nothing wrong, you need to keep going because what you're doing is will change Christchurch for the better forever. So you yeah. just carry on. Eyes on the prize. Yeah. Did you, has that made you a stronger person, a stronger leader? Do you feel like all of what you've been through, which is a lot in a in a startup phase of a community <laughs> foundation, do you feel fairly like bulletproof? I've never been worried about the journey as a person. I'm always worried about the destination. And I'm the kind of person that sees roadblocks or bumps in the road as just a slight annoyance that you just go round or over. So, um, and, you know, obviously there's been some bigger ones more recently. That, well, not recently, but a few years ago than, than we've had than, than others may have experienced. But to me, it was always about the end goal. I think I'm fairly pragmatic. I mean, I'm just going to be thankful you've got good friends and family and a board that 100% backed you and were more grumpy than I was about how I was being treated. I think one of the hardest things is community foundations are often small at the start. And especially in New Zealand where, um, you know, it's often the, the you know the, the director and, and a couple of others as things, as, you know, become and develop. Quite lonely, right? You don't have a lot of colleagues to draw sort of strength from during that period. And so your board become really important. And you touched on that with your friends and family become, you know, really important. In terms of the future of the community foundation, you sort of overcome that that period. Mm. Um, did it bring about a rethink of strategy or just a, a refining of? Or what was the sort of effect of the, the criticism? Nothing. We doubled down because yeah. we believed that what we're doing was right. And retrospectively, 
we tried to point out, because we spent hours talking to those external consultants about community foundations, they just didn't understand the model. They'd never seen it before. They'd never audited beyond a financial audit uh, an organisation. So they just didn't understand impact or purpose or how entities like us work anywhere in the world. So the wrong people won the work. And we did point out our concerns about that at the time, but we should have been louder about that and actually gone to council and said, these guys are up to doing this job and it's going to put us both at risk because the council received a lot of flack as well. Why are you backing these guys, you know? And um, so it was just a waste. What just frustrated me, it was such a huge waste of time and money and energy when we could have been doing wonderful things for our residents. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Well, because, you know, a big part of community foundations is, is growing that endowment. It's it's attracting individuals to give through the community foundation. So instead of setting up their own charitable foundation, which is, can be costly, uh, time-consuming, they've got to get together a governance board, you know, they do it through you and you help them give well, as we've talked mm-hmm. about before. Was there a fear that all the controversy, the sort of headlines was going to affect the kind of wealthy of of all the the generous local people to give through you or did you and did you get sense that wasn't going to be the case clearly early on or I think there was a fear that so we just pushed out proactive communications to our existing donors which clearly put their any concerns they had you know we offered we'll meet with any of you if you've got any concerns and those sorts of things no one withdrew their generosity more people gave so I think there's been a couple of incidences since where people will go, oh, we Googled you and we saw that you've got issues with transparency. But, you know, you can go, well, here are all the other articles and here's the council reports saying that they have no issues now and, you know, and that that's all behind us. So, yeah, look, I, I mean, community foundations are about longevity. So this is always just going to be a, a small part of our story that will be duly forgotten at some point and quite rightly so. So I, I wasn't worried about the long term. It was just frustrating in, in the short term. And because we're, we're not a typical, well, Momentum in Waikato and Auckland Foundation in Auckland and Queenstown to a lesser degree, we're not only doing legacy-based giving. So we're not just doing endowments. We've also got a really strong corporate program. We've also got sister charity in the UK to facilitate expatriate giving, and we're about to do the same in the US. So we're having huge impact now through facilitating pass, through giving that's informed and, and measured for impact. And I believe that good mahi or work that we do now will only grow the endowment as we show the impact that we can have as an organisation. I think from my view is that every community foundation does look and should look differently because every every city so it's place-based giving every every city is is very unique isn't it totally agree if we're all the same then we've missed the point and I think we also need to realize that not every donor wants to give through endowment and if we truly are donor-led organizations what you need to have is the agility and ability and willingness to respond to how people want to give there's no right model Yes, endowment's an important part of what we do, but it's only one way that people want to give. And I think there's huge generational changes in the way people are giving as well. You know, baby boomers have tended to give more through wills or estates, whereas, you know, I'm Gen Z, we're more, what am I, Gen X, I think, more um, likely to do a bit of both. You know, we give now and through estate. And yet, there's kids now, micro-giving now, well, that is just as important as an estate. 
because if you, you know, the culminative effect, that's going to be huge. So we've got a big focus on and how we grow future givers or grow givers for a lifetime. So we're doing a lot of work supporting teaching teenagers about philanthropy and the impact that it can have and how that anyone can be involved from a gift of 50 cents or if their time is just as important. And change your tax slightly just to focus on you as an individual. What's your kind of superpower? When is Amy Carter at her best? When, you know, what what do you bring to that sort of leadership role that when you go, hey, I'm I'm really good at that? People tell me that I'm a champion. People, like I was speaking to one of our corporates the other day and, and they give us $100,000 and probably well more than that per annum pro bono support, which is a huge reason why we don't need money from the council, which is great. I said, why did you sign up? And he said, oh, it's just passion. He said, I could see your passion and your vision and you could articulate it. And I just wanted to be a part of it. So I think, you know, and I talk about flow, which is probably I used to be a, a coach, a professional coach in a previous life. And um, you know how when when you've had a good idea and then everything kind of just lands in your lap, everything that you need is just sort of there, that, that I tend to get to a point where that starts to happen. And so, yeah, and maybe it's the ability to recognise that. <laughs> um, that, okay, this is a good thing. We need to keep going forward with it because of the way it's inspiring others and inspiring generosity and we can see the community outcomes and those sorts of things. So I think, yeah, I'm definitely big picture and thinking ahead. I'm not someone, you know, I won't be involved in this organisation when we stop, when it becomes more about business as usual and delivering it. Um, I'm, I'm really good at building things. I'm not good at making the ship go faster. I get a bit bored with that. Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. leaving, because looking at your career path and, and leaving comms and marketing, you know, behind and, and, and really entrepreneurial journey in many ways, isn't it, that you've been on, was, is it, does that feel good? Because it's you're at the, the centre of doing something rather than just focusing on helping people communicate better or, and also to double down on that question, you didn't do that New York trip. So do you think that the, the, you know, the future will be overseas at, at some point in your life? Yeah, well, I'm off to London in a couple of weeks to thank our donors there. <laughs> so I'm going quite soon, actually. But no, um, possibly. I think anyone that's building something new should be planning from day one how they're not going to be there. So my we've been very structured as an organisation, both from a governance and management level, about what is our exit strategy from the team that established us. Because... The establishment team was put together by Leanne Dalziel with specific skill sets. We were here to get the job done and get it up and running, and, we, and we've done that. So Humphrey rolls to now cheers, is about to exit. We've just gone to market looking for new for new trustees, and, and I'm actively planning my exit out. And then what holds? I don't know. I mean, I've got quite young kids. I've lived and worked overseas before. You know, my husband and I are probably what you'd call serial entrepreneurs we've got many business interests and we've always got some a project on the go so at some point that will likely see us be both based overseas but home's home you know we're both from Christchurch we love this place you know so you know that pull back here will always be strong and what is your hope for it's, it's wider than the city isn't it? it's wider than Christchurch but what is your mm. hope for Canterbury I think we're Goldilocks. <laughs> we we should be the best, the, the aspirational place that people want to live in if you don't want to be in a super city. I mean, you know, it's not that, you know, across greater Christchurch populations around 
six between six and seven hundred thousand. I think we're not too big. We're not too small. We've got an international port, an international airport. I can surf and ski in the same day. My commute at rush hour is twenty five minutes at worst. Unlike every other Western city in the world, because of the earthquakes, we have new infrastructure, so we don't have to deal with that mess that everyone else is facing. So now is our time. I think we are already becoming one of the most exciting cities on the planet to live in and play in and be a part of. And you can see that. Um, people are moving here en masse. Uh, there's an appetite for energy and enthusiasm. It's a city where anything's possible. It's a city of opportunity. And in, in a Western world context, there's not many of those around. So I think the future for Greater Christchurch is incredibly exciting. Amy Carter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Purposely. Oh, thank you, Mark. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.